Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Thanks for joining us in this brand new episode of Window on the West. We are finally back into the Silmarillion. This week we're going to be on chapter 11 of the sun and moon and the hiding of Valinor. Uh, because we have been in on, uh, if you're listening to this later, we've been doing some uh, in-depth reviews of um, the greatest show in the history of modern television, The Rings of Power. The greatest show never told. The greatest show that never should have been filmed. However, if you're interested in that, go to our YouTube channel. You can follow the, all, the, all the all the in-depth and other reviews and other videos that we have. Uh, but this is back into Tolkien, and we're really thankful to be into it because it was a long slog. And Michael is celebrating. I'm drinking to the, <laughs> watching us. the end of Rings of Power. He has a celebratory beverage. Uh, so maybe he'll get a little loopy later. We'll see. <laughs> um, but we, we're going to read into that. Or read into that. We're going to read <laughs> chapter 11. Here we're going to go over it, talk about the sun and the moon and the Heimlich Valinor. But before we do, we always like to have our special event of... All that is gold does not glitter. And so today we are going to be looking at uh, how well Michael and Dan know Tolkien and know now the rings of power. Mm. So okay. yeah, if you don't want to hear anything about the rings of power, go ahead and skip over this here, but we're going to have a little fun here. So I got away from it, man. <laughs> so you guys have to do two things. And, and some of these are, you know, some of these might be a little, a couple might be a little hard. Yeah. You should get it though. Um, two things. One, is it Tolkien or is it rings of power? And two, do you know who said it? Mm. Oh, it was a character. Whoa. What character the said it? What character said it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So number one, uh, well, I, I don't have a little scorecard here. So number one, we'll just go off, go off this otherwise. Okay. Uh, this one is the harder one. 10,000 thunders. Take this fool to prison instead. Tolkien or rings of power? Hmm. I'm starting off with a, an easy one. No, I'm joking. This is the hardest one actually by far. <laughs> I've stumped you guys. Come on. I'm, I'm going to say this is Tolkien. All right. Michael? Why? Wait, you're not allowed to like fish for Dan's <laughs> answers. Wait, what? No, 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 no. You can't do that. Um, Tolkien or Rings of Power? See, I don't remember it in the Rings of Power. That's my problem, but... Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So... Go with so, your gut. So I'm going to go with Tolkien. All right. Good. You guys got it right. This is no, way too no, sophisticated no. for the rings of power. Honestly, this kind of thing, it's, not, it's not exactly the highest. Okay. Do you have I'm any a, idea where it's from though? I'm a little stumped on where it would be from though. I think it's from the Hobbit. Maybe. That's a good guess, but you're wrong. Uh, Michael? <laughs> um, it's not, is it farmer Giles? Boom. Hey, wow. Look at that. Yeah. It's the king from Farmer Giles of Ham. Wow, how did yeah. you know that, man? I, I, actually, it was—it's just a, a like a spark went off in my brain. There was there, are, I think I remember the part. So yeah, yeah, hmm. that's cool. Good job. You both got it right, mostly. All right, so next one, perhaps the favorite favorite line I've ever heard in all my years of life: "The wine <laughs> of victory is sweetest for those in whose bitter trials it has fermented." 
I mean, the depth of the use of the passive voice to be <laughs> passive about being passive about being <laughs> passive is really just send that fool to prison. Of which are you exactly speaking of? Mm. No. So this is this is obviously Rings of Power, and this is um, not Elrond. Not Elrond. <laughs> Do you concur, Daniel Coates? Uh, it's Tolkien, right? <laughs> oh, don't even joke. It's not allowed. Yeah, it's it's uh, fake Elrond and it Rings of fake Power. Ed, fake Elrond and the Rings of Power. All right, next, another another great line from Tolkien. Or I mean, not from Tolkien. I mean, from Tolkien. For unlike the stone, her gaze is not downward, but up. Oh, All right, man. guys. All right, mm-hmm. Dan. I'm going to you first. This one. This time. This is the uh, the moral relativism that is taught by Rings of Power. Do you concur, Michael? It is. And Dan, it do you is. know? Do you know the character who says this? Uh, Remember? It's uh, Fake Finrod. Fake Finrod. Good job, <laughs> Michael. You knew that. I didn't have mm-hmm. to ask. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, that's where, yes. That's where he gets into the whole lesson of like, in order to know what the light is, you have to touch the darkness. The dark. Which, let's remember, at this point, at the time he's saying that, he's been in Valinor. Feanor hasn't done anything. So there's not a whole lot of darkness to touch at this point. Mm. I mean, I guess they've heard of Melkor a little bit, but nothing's really happened in their life. Anyway, all right, let's move on. I mean, from all they know, since the light is from the two trees, what he's really saying, and this is uh, just oh another great, great reason yeah. why it makes no sense, yeah, is that they have to get on a ship and sail away from Valinor into the darkness so that they know what the light of the two trees looks like. It's so deep. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's ruminate on that. Or no, let's just move on. Okay, let's good. On. <laughs> let's go on to this next amazing quote. She might have kept alive the very evil she sought to defeat. You're just trolling us now. Yeah, it's, it's, well, <laughs> you guys don't know this stuff. Jeez. Oh, this Come is on, um, man. this is uh, this is head chief manager Gilgalad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> power. Yeah. Middle manager of Gilgalad. So, well, what, what do we decide? It was uh, body positive, high king Steve. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in in talk in the in the two towers. This is what uh, he says. No, wait, no. In the summer, no. In <laughs> but rings can you name the episode of the rings of power uh that would be episode one yeah good job all right favorite show ever all right there we go <laughs> how about this one i killed sauron oh, <sighs> yeah. rings only, of power it's rings of power the only likable elf adar adar he's not an elf he's an orc what are you talking about he's, he's like uruk he identifies as an uruk uruk he identifies as he's a proto orc that's so funny how many comments I saw online, how uh, everyone was saying, the only characters I'm rooting for are Adar and Sauron now. <laughs> it's true. It's totally true. Yeah. They're the ones that have been manipulated by all the evil elves, essentially. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, all right. Next line. <laughs> nobody goes off trail uh-huh. and nobody walks alone. You know this is I a maxim of truths in the world <laughs> that we must adhere to. As I was looking at that last quote, of like, he's not going to... Don't go to DLSs. Please don't go to DLSs. <laughs> but no. Yeah, this would so, be a lot of... This isn't from a single person. This is from all mm, of, mm-hmm. of the dirty little sociopaths mm-hmm. called the Harfoots. That's which true. Am- Amazon claims aren't hobbits, even though on page three of the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien clearly states that they're hobbits, that Harfoots are hobbits. But, I mean, yeah. it's a call and response, so you'd have to say it's the dirty little sociopath leader, not just 
all of them. So he's the one that leads them in the chant. That's why I put the word leader there. However, okay. yes, you are correct. The now, Dan, the now deceased leader. I, I, you probably would have gotten that wrong, Dan, because you haven't read everything that Tolkien's ever written. But, you know. <laughs> no. It's close. It's very close to what Tolkien might write. Uh, all right. I think we've right. got uh, two more. <laughs> oh, oh, wait. Oh, no. Okay. Well, you got this one. Sorry, guys. The metal shouldn't be forced to join, but more drawn or coaxed together. I guess I didn't in my screen, uh, in my slides here, I kind of misplayed this. So you guys know who it is. It's the Rings of Power and our favorite ancient millennial smith. Yeah, homeless old man. Homeless old Kellabimbo. Kellabrimbor. <laughs> Kellabmanager. Kellaboring. It's, yeah, so yeah, obviously the guy who, who, who had been working with metals and creating amazing works of art and amazing, uh, I would guess, even weaponry and things. Anything that his amazing mind would put his... Put, that he would put his hands to uh he didn't know how to create alloys you, you know metal shouldn't be forced to join i think they just call that melting in smith you know if you're a smith right uh so metal shouldn't I, be melting. I, I thought it was coaxing i thought well you mentioned that colloquially we call coaxing gravity <laughs> so well, that's what they showed us they showed us here's how you coax and they hold the metal carefully and then they just drop it drop it there in. you go all right coaxed Okay. All right. Let's see. Oh, I had it reversed. Okay. So in, here, here's our last one. In the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. See, that's, this, is, this is trying to trick us. It's rings of power and it's Bronwyn. <laughs> nope. No? What? Oh, Damn. Wrong no. What? no. It totally Damn. is. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so so she the first part of it is said by Bronwyn, I believe. The second part of it yeah. um, was not. So the whole quote is from Tolkien. Not precisely. Sam and oh. um, yeah, okay. you, yeah. Your least favorite line from from Tolkien, I know, Dan. Mm. It is from the <laughs> The Land of Ch Shadow, chapter two in Return of the King. Mm. And uh look, you guys pretty much I'll say we got them all right, or you got them all right. And so not hard to tell. Just just thinking forward on this you know we now know that the the poem about aragorn um was in fact invented by the hobbits and taught to gandalf the harfoots <laughs> and we now know um i'd forgotten you know, about that we now know oh, that no. the line by galadriel after she passes her test uh in the chapter mirror of galadriel that was now from sauron so yes. so, so the the primary evil dude actually came up with her own line and so now we know that somehow magically Bronwyn has taught Sam about the shadow three and a half thousand mm. years later. It's uh, genetic memory. I should not. Somehow she married a Harfoot at some point so to come across. Proves, exactly. This proves that Bronwyn will in fact marry one of the DLSs by the end of the series. So that oh my she, goodness. Can, she can pass on her knowledge through six millennia so that Sam can then have it to say at the <clears throat> That's really cool how huh? they connected everything all together like that. <laughs> it all fits. It's, it's, it's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, what, you're, what you're saying, Dan, is you're saying exactly what the writers were thinking. You know that. That's exactly what they were thinking. And it's true. They, you know that that. they were thinking that. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's put this behind us. Next time, we won't be quoting the Rings of Power. We'll be, we'll be doing something a little more fulfilling, heartening. Yeah. Back to the books, back to the books. Back, back to, the books. to the books. That's right. All right. So back to the book. Chapter 11 of the Silmarillion, the Quintus Silmarillion, of the sun and moon and the hiding of Valinor. 
And as usual, we always start with the most impactful statement of the entire day that I will experience probably this entire week, which is Dad's Big Thought. All right. Thanks for that intro. So, uh, I, so, uh, I guess my big thought this week is that there was a certain theme that kind of struck me while I was reading the chapter. And I, I think that theme is that I don't know who said this or just a phrase that I've always heard, but it's always darkest before the dawn. And so you mm. hear the chat, the previous chapter, we've seen that the trees have been killed by, um, Melkor and Ungoliant. And so now everyone's just sitting there going, man, everything sucks now. Everything's gone. They all got taken away. Um, so if I could quickly summarize kind of like this one part of the chapter that um, struck me, it's where Manwe is telling Nienna and Yavanna to exert all their powers of growth and healing upon the dead trees. And the light's all gone. Everything is just shadow now. And uh, we read earlier in the book that the trees were a great work that could only be done once. So in a sense, the, the work that they're doing is, is just hopeless. They, they, they don't have a chance of bringing the trees back. So Tolkien writes, uh, the tears of Nienna availed not. And then he also writes, Yavanna sang alone in the shadows. And then he writes, um, as hope failed and the song faltered, Telperion bore at least or at last upon a leafless bough, one great flower of silver and Laurelin, a single fruit of gold. And then Yavanna gives these to Aule and Manwe hallows them and Anwe, or Aule makes them into vessels that fly in the sky. And I, I just was kind of struck with the idea that they're toiling and they're, they're working and they're, they're even singing and they're, they're, they're crying um, tears hmm. and they're, they're just in the dark. They're just in the shadows and they don't, they don't, they're, they're doing this with an expectation that it's not going to do anything. It's not going to, so that, that kind of hit me. Like they're, they're just, they're going to do it anyway. And, and in the end, something good comes out of it. So are you emphasizing the point at which they're striving without knowing whether they will succeed? Yeah. It, Cause I think like we're told in a previous chapter, uh, was it Yavanna? She said, I can never do this again. I can never mm -hmm. make these trees again. And that's before they ask Feanor to, give us some of the light from the Cimmerils that you've made. And he says, if I break these, I can never do this again. And so it's like this idea, like they're, they're going out and they're going to try to do something, but they, but they know they can't do it again. So I just thought that that was interesting and something, yeah. something good still comes out of it. Yep. So they, I, and of course they're, they're not wrong. Technically they don't, she doesn't bring the trees back to life. So she can't, mm -hmm. cause she can't do that again. They do bring forth. It is interesting that it's Giovanna and Nienna together. That's the mm -hmm. interesting part to me, is that before it was not, Nienna had no part, but now that there's death and there's something to mourn, Nienna has a part in, in bringing mm -hmm. forth these two, the, the one flower and the one fruit. So that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think it's, you know, like you said, Dan, it's one thing they can only do once. And instead of taking the fruit which you would think is a seed of sorts and planting it in the ground again, they how they put it in the sky so it can't be defeated again, right? They actually like they want to keep it uh, apart from uh, the possible destruction that could happen back in in Valinor. 
So mm-hmm. I, I mean, in reading it this time, I, I realized, well, may, maybe that's what they did because it, it is fruit. They mentioned it's, um, you know, uh, like a Telperian bore, bore at last upon a leafless bough, one great flower of silver and laurelin, a single fruit of gold. So I guess maybe you could say what well, the great flower is not enough to bear another tree of sorts, but um, it was a single fruit of gold. I'm not sure where to go with that exactly, but that they preserve it rather than like a Silmaril rather than try to replant it. Hmm. Yeah, clearly they understand that though they've produced a, a flower, single flower and a single fruit, there's nothing more is going to come of that. So they have some some thought about that. Or or do you think it's rather that they're just trying to protect them, the light from them, because they have the golden light and the silver light. So there's are they thinking more long? Maybe actually now now I'm kind of shifting my opinion. I actually now I'm believing more of the latter. And here's why. That the they're end of, protecting it. Yes. At yeah, the end I agree of this with chapter, that. At the end of this chapter, they show that their whole motivation is defensive. So it has this section where it talks about how they raise up the mountains, the pylori, to these mm. be these sheer walls like glass, which I think is a deliberate reference to the fact that that um, Ungoliant was able to crawl over the mountains the first time and get into Valinor. So now she's not going to be able to, or any of her spawn aren't going to be able to. So they change the mountains so that, they, that you can't get in there. They put a mighty host on the one passage that there is to Valinor. So they're really guarding the place up. But this leads me to something which perhaps um, the Valar and their wisdom have have foreseen and are answering my my accusation before I start. So I'll read their answer. I'll tell you my accusation, read their answer. So those of you that have listened to the, the, this podcast in the previous episodes know that I have, I'm of the opinion that the Valar err in taking too few actions um, frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so in answer, perhaps to me, I laughed when I read this uh, again. In the very first sentence, it says, It is told after the flight of Melkor that Valar sat long unmoved upon their thrones in the Ring of Doom, but they were not idle, as Feanor declared in the folly of his heart. So perhaps this is the folly of my heart declaring that they're idle. Um, <laughs> but to take as... It, so then it then talks about something really interesting. It says what they were doing. Like, they're not idle, so what were they doing? Um they have this very interesting line. I wonder what you guys thought of it. For the Valar work many things with thought rather than with hands and without voices in silence, they may hold counsel with one another. Okay, so they're holding counsel, no big deal. Thus they held vigil in the night of Valinor and their thought passed back beyond Ea and forth to the end. So their thoughts passed back and forth, essentially, beyond Ea, beyond the world itself, and forth to the end. I'm presuming the end of, of everything world, of everything That's, of all creation i mean it's a capital e yeah That's it's a cap- capital e end hmm. um and so so this is very interesting and then yet neither power nor wisdom assuage their grief and and the knowing of evil in the hour of its being okay first of all to say that this would be the knowing of, of evil. It's not the knowing of evil for the first time that's affecting them because Morgoth's already done great evil and Feanor's done evil before this and it didn't affect him this way. So this is the, it must be the gravity of the evil with the destruction of the two trees that's affecting them this way. But they are kind of stunned and and they they don't, um, their grief is not assuaged. So so we're showing their grief. And then it, they move on and they say that basically they're, mo- they're mourning um they mourned not more for the death of the trees than for the marring of Fionor. So that was really interesting. So mm. the, the trees, everyone's sad at the loss of, that seems to be the great crime. But the Valar are mourning the, the loss of Fionor. So, Why? 
Of all the works of Melkor, one of the most evil, for Fëanor was made the mightiest in all parts of body and mind, in valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength, and in subtlety alike, of all the children of Ilutar, and a bright flame was in him. See, this is fascinating to me, because what we have here, I think, is a core of, a, of Tolkien's philosophy, which is very antithetical to the to modern the modern mind. And that is that, um, so we know that Fëanor is going to do, has, has already done great evil. We've heard, we've seen the evils that he's done to his own people. Um, he's, he's become thoroughly evil. And yet what the Valor remember, and the reason they mourn is because the greatest has been marred. They have a purely objective um, response to the loss of the greatest of the children of Iluvatar, which is, and that unlike us, we we lose empathy for Feanor when we hear about the evil that he done. At least I do, and I think other others probably do too. But the Valar, they mourn the loss of the 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 greatness and the beauty and the power that was in Feanor. As humans, we tend to have a reaction where if someone who is tremendously um, intelligent, powerful, successful, um, you know, imagine an Elon Musk. Um, who is also uh, uh, an Olympic gold medalist and and you know a ruler of a small nation or something like that, and then they fall into corruption. We we tend to see their fall as something to be either celebrated or to get angry about the, the what they've done. The Valar see the sadness of the of the fall of the great, and that that's fascinating to me. Hmm. I think that certainly goes along with what Tolkien wrote when um, even he talks about. Uh, nothing is a monolith, not even a person, right? Meaning that uh, when he was looking at World War II and it was going on, he'd write a letter to his, uh, his son, Christopher, who was fighting. He would talk about how there are plenty of orcs on our side too. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and, and, a, and a person in and of itself, I mean, he has a quote about a certain, a certain priest who's the worst person in the world, but he, doesn't, he still mentions a little bit of a positivity about him. And so even here, yeah, I think you're right. You can see that... Um, his he, the take on Feanor isn't that his his one deed defined everything about him, uh, but there was the light of of what uh, Iluvatar created in him as the mightiest in all parts of body and mind was something to be mourned. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we don't we don't tend to do that. We don't tend to mourn we when don't. the mighty who have power and greatness when they fall. Um, we, we might have a moment of regret, but mostly we have, um, we, we, we lean into the attacks, we lean into opposition if they're actively evil like Fionor is right now. Um, yeah. So, so it's, that was fascinating. So they're, they're, Valor are clearly different. Nevertheless, I'm going to go back to their own quote. They were not idle, as Fionor declared in the fall of his heart. Okay, so what do they do? Remember, the Noldor have left... Fionor's mm-hmm. left. He's gone to Tyrion. He's gathered the elves. They've had their vows. They've gathered their hosts. They've traveled to... Oh, I'm sorry. He went to his home first, and then he went to Tyrion. Mm-hmm. And then he traveled. they traveled to the coast, and then they had the altercation, and they had the kinsling. And then they traveled up, and Mandos appeared to them, and then do a Mandos. And then, because it says... down at the bottom uh, of that section. But when at last the Valar learned that the Noldor had passed indeed out of Amun and were come, uh, were come back into Middle-earth, they arose and began to set forth in deeds 
those counsels which they had taken in thought for the progressive mules. So they sit there for at least weeks doing nothing. They don't chase Melkor. They don't. Um, now you can say, well, well. Anyway, what do you guys think about that? I, I, I don't think. I, I think that just simply making plans in thought is. And what, what, what are their plans? Their plans are make the sun and moon, okay, mm-hmm. and then uh, build up our defenses around Valinor. Yeah, they they build the the greatest moat ever created because it's <laughs> it's uh, it's there's water there's there's mysterious islands that uh, l- l- send you astray and you'll never find where you're actually heading for if you get into them right the enchanted isles mm-hmm. uh, they 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 raise up the mountains to be even even taller and sheer as glass they put uh, um, you know the defenses in the one pass that's left through to Valinor it's 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 not to be active in um, in the world other than giving the light of the sun and the moon, which does have a good effect against Morgoth uh, because it makes the sun makes him retreat and he feels like he can't stand up to it at all. Uh, And so it belches out blackness and darkness, but everything that they do is, is to hunker down. What what do you guys think about that? To me, that, that smacks of the Valar not reacting in a manner proportionate yeah. or proper to i'm not saying they have to go to war is it, so because yeah because they do call out call that out and say that they were afraid to to hurt the men the second children who they knew were going to be weaker than the elves so it calls that out so if that's fair so don't go to open war but surely there's something you can do for the all of middle so, earth besides just the sun and the moon do you think that their previous engagements with morgoth like as Tolkien was writing this and he was thinking about it, do you think he thought like, okay, they would have been certainly hesitant to do more engagement because they brought the elves over bringing, bringing the sheer act of bringing all the elves to Valinor essentially caused the downfall of the trees because of Morgoth's, uh, his, his greed, his, uh, his envy of the relationship the elves had with the, the rest of the, the Valor. Right. So is it that they they do not want to cause the destruction that they already caused? They don't want to. All their involvement, all their meddling, has created this hmm. these disasters upon them, and hmm. so that way they're like, okay, we will stand here and not do much because everything that we've done so far has ended in some sort of tragedy. So now they're now they're just jumping in shadow. So now they're they're. I I just sure. I agree with you. It seems like that. It's like well, whatever we whenever we took an active hand. It, it Melkor did stuff, yeah. re- responded to our activity by doing terrible things. So maybe if we just stop doing things, then and he he won't be as terrible. I, I that just I don't know doesn't yeah. it isn't that isn't convincing as far as like guardianship. Guardianship seems more active than that. Hmm. I almost wonder if part of it is the the doom of Mandos that they have already decided that hmm. you know, with the Noldor being in middle earth, it's like they've decided their fate and it's apart from the, the, the Valar. And so okay. maybe, maybe, maybe part of that judgment is that they won't, they won't get involved. Maybe that's part of that, that doom. Okay. Yeah. I could start to see that a little bit. And, and maybe this t- d- dovetails in with what you were saying to Jonathan, because perhaps there is an element of, I mean, like one of the things that is really powerful in Tolkien is he has a real distrust of power. Whenever mm-hmm. people exert power over others, it's almost always shown to be a mistake at some level at some point. And so maybe the, in his mind, the passive guardianship is better than the active guardianship. Maybe it's mm-hmm. better to not exert their power except in the most subtle ways. I mean, that might explain the Ishtari, Ishtari for example. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and the way they they you know they didn't they didn't send anybody else or they didn't go themselves over. I mean, they can come to Middle Earth without fighting a war. There's it's not there's no war of wrath required just because just for them to take a more active hand. But they they definitely um, aim for less active. Hmm. Also, yeah. maybe maybe it's a Luvatar, right? That's true. Well, but though you could say like by by creating the days by creating the night the moon the sun the day they have they have changed the the shape of the world in a way because uh morgoth no longer wants to go out during the day and so he he huddles down in angband or uh, uh tumno and no longer uh uh wants to be out in the sun because he can't even stand the sight of it um i yeah it, it seems that they certainly take a different tack they're no longer creating giant trees that are lights right they never they don't longer have giant lampstands they didn't everything that that they created to determine the fate of how the world works has been destroyed by morgoth in shattering and world destroying ways so uh, it would certainly make me gun shy i guess right now i would point out that the sun and moon are very similar to the twin lamps and to the two trees except that they're unreachable Right, they just seem to be getting better at protecting. Yeah. They've learned from that. Yeah, they've learned from their mistakes there. Yeah. Hmm. All right, we solved it. Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I just I can't um, help but think there's yeah. more. There, there could be more, but but yeah. having having said that, I think it is really worth. There's a glorious quote about the first rising of the sun. I wanted to read from. Yeah, let's get from. into that. Let's get into that. So this is the most to me. It's the most um, uh, mythological part of the chapter about how the sun works and how the moon works and the sun chasing the moon and the moon blocking the sun's light and all that sort of stuff. It, it goes through all of that and how the evening is created. The evening is the most like the uh, the sun setting is most like the the time of the two trees mingling together and and right isn't that right. am I remembering that right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Michael. But you, I think you have more insight into this than I do because I haven't ever studied this kind of mythology and how it all works together but maybe you have right so i mean i'm not i'm no mythological expert but i've I've read plenty so the quote that i wanted to read um was about this the rising of the sun and specifically the rising of the sun the moon it said uh tillian which is tillian is the maiar who drives the vessel of the moon so the the moon the vessel of the moon which is the flower the silver flower is called isil and tillian um essentially guides isil Tillian had traversed the heaven seven times and thus was back in the furthest east when the vessel of Arian was made ready. So Arian is the Maya who, um, she's a Maya of flame who was not corrupted by um, Morgoth. So what you got, what you have to think is a good Balrog. Think of a spirit of flame. That's which, weird. I had actually written that down. Oh, like, really? That was my note, like a yeah. good Balrog. Yeah. 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 A beautiful, a beautiful good Balrog. I mean, so that, that everyone... And her eyes are of fire, and no one can look at her. The children of Iluvatar can't even bear to look at her. So she's incredibly powerful. So she drives the sun, the vessel of the sun. So the vessel of the sun is Anar, and her name is Arian. So then Anar rose in glory. This is the vessel of the sun. And the first dawn of the sun was like a great fire upon the towers of the Pylori. These are the mountains of Elnor. The clouds of Middle-earth were kindled, and there was heard the sound of many waterfalls. That's really interesting. Hmm. That, mm-hmm. that all of a sudden the sound of waterfalls is made um, clear, rising which, of the sun. which is what, what, what mm-hmm. I think he's saying is the sun rises and there's a great melting of the ice in the parts of the world where there's ice. And so you have, oh. the, you have the creation of these massive waterfalls or glacial drift, as we might call it. Then indeed Morgoth was dismayed and he descended into the uttermost, de- uttermost depths of Angban and withdrew his servants, sending forth great reek 
and dark cloud to hide his land from the light of the day star. Just beautiful. It's a, yeah. it's a wonderful, and it, and it kind of gets at the heart of Tolkien's themes of darkness and light, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, that are so key to everything that he writes. Uh, we even see a, the precursor to, you know, to Mordor here. Uh, and it has, it has nothing to do with any um, breaking of dams and 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 pyroclastic um, <laughs> flow, but uh, no, does not. Thankfully, doesn't they? I'm trying to find. I didn't. I didn't mark this quote in my read. Uh, but th- don't they talk about how um, there was too much light? You know, there was. Um... Yes, it, it, that has to do with the wayward nature of Tillian, the, yes. the, the, the huntsman Maiar that drives the moon. He keeps, he keeps trying to get close to the sun and burns. So the dark side of the moon is essentially because he keeps trying to get close to the sun. There. Oh, yeah, here I've got the quote. Sorry, it's right there. Because of the waywardness of Tillian, therefore, and yet more because of the prayers of Lorien and Este, who said that sleep and rest had been banished from the earth. <laughs> Dang. It's a little melodramatic, but okay. Maureen and Este, we know who you are now. And the stars were hidden. <laughs> Varda changed her counsel and allowed a time wherein the world should still have shadow and half light. It would be like being at the North Pole during the summer. That's essentially what they're kind of saying is that like, hey, there was way too much light and people weren't getting the sleep and the rest that they needed. Um, certainly for, for elves and uh, the Valar who had known more of the stars, like the elves woke up right, or woke to the stars. that They hadn't seen the sun. They hadn't seen the light until they were brought to Valinor. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. I love I love the whole. The, I it's almost like this this chapter needs to be mapped out and how they decide how everything is going to happen because of how you know. Okay, so how are we going to deal with eclipses? All right, so how are we going to deal with the the evening and the sunrise and how that looks? All right, okay, and so how are we going to deal with the why why is the moon random and or seemingly random and uh, and and not as reliable as the sun? Right, yeah. right, and why does it have a dark spots and and or a dark side? And, uh, you know, what about, a, yeah, like you said, eclipses. Yeah. so this is very mythological. So this, I mean, the vessel of the sun um, r- reminds me most of the, of course, the Greek mythologies with um, Hyperion driving the chariot of the sun. Mm. So, so there's, there's a direct call there. Um, and so, I mean, there, and there's lots of, I mean, there are plenty of um, mythologies. Almost all of them have an explanation for what the sun and often the moon are. Um, so, so there's, there's quite a few, and this is obviously mythological, like we were saying, um, it is interesting. It's almost like Tolkien just, he just shifts kind of seamlessly between kinds of narrative. Like we've been learning a lot about for like most of the last few chapters have been about, um, well, not the last few, but most of the chapters about the Noldor were about kind of an origin of the fall of the Noldor, kind of like a Genesis story of the fall of the Noldor. But here we're talking about mythological explanations, very much like generic um, or different myth- mythologies from different uh, cultures. And then previous chapter was more like a historical account, and he's gonna he, where he, he talks about wh- who the Sindar were and all the different Sindar. It's he switches between narrative to story to history to mythology and back again. It's very interesting. It seems almost impossible to do well. And yet it works because <laughs> you, as you go through this mythological, you know, this great mythology of the sun and the moon, he ties it into the little bits of Feanor, uh, you know, and Ungoliant and, and Morgoth, uh, Melkor at the time, killing 
killing the trees. And that's why we get the sun and the moon. And why does the sun and moon? Well, we've got uh, these two characters. We've got, uh, shoot now, I, uh, Arian and Tillian, right? Who are, mm-hmm. Tillian is chasing, he's he's not as reliable. And, and it works still because it works within the world that he's created, like the rest of it. So any good story writer will say, like, I'm not going to just create stuff out of thin air. It has to tie back into what I've already created. And he does that throughout this entire chapter, even though it's, magnificently odd in a way it doesn't it's not after the burning of the ships of uh, uh right. you know, that Feanor burns the ships like that's that's dastardly and villainous and, and all of a sudden we get into this now story of the the, the sun and the moon and yeah you're right yeah he, he he goes so seamlessly from that to uh history to you know characters to mythology yeah yeah he's got the, he, he could definitely drive stick as they say he's got the his, his his literary car has a lot of gears and uh he shifts from the historical to the mythological to the mm. um to the i don't think tolkien would that. like that analogy considering <laughs> he was not a fan of the machine so i think you're gonna have to find it yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe oh yeah I mean, all right seasons how about that? there you go like changing <laughs> the seasons so go the stories of J.R. tolkien um I think, uh, I don't know if we want to go through all the little ins and outs of the sun and moon. You can read through those and talk about how, uh, uh, well, I think there, there are two two parts of it that I thought were important. One is that one, indeed, Morgoth was dismayed, like you said, and he descended into the othermost depths of Angband and withdrew his servants, right? Uh, but the other one is that uh, neither the sun and the moon can recall the light that was of old that came from the trees before they were touched by the poison. The light now lives in the silver rose alone. So even then they were saying like, this light, though it came from the trees, not the same thing it's not even close to what the light of the trees was like that's right that's right it's not it's not the light of the trees it's their own light and one can't help maybe i'm wrong in this but i couldn't help i can't help when i think about the 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 flower and the fruit thinking that also the vessels crafted by aole and his and his maya maya that work with him that it's kind of like the sun is kind of like the globe, the golden globe of the fruit, plus the vessel crafted by Aole, plus the light of Arian herself. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And all, all kind of in this bundle that we now call the sun. And the same thing with, with the moon. And so, so it, is, it is kind of fascinating that it's a different kind of light, although very effective. Yeah. I also, you know, that detail that I think I might have mentioned, but the fact that Morgoth does try a retaliatory strike against the moon he can't the sun's too powerful for him but he tries the moon and how does he get there he can't get there himself because he's been dispersing his spirit and it specifically calls out that he's getting weaker um but it says that uh that then he assailed tillian sending spirits of shadow against him and there was strife and ill men beneath the paths of the stars but tillian was victorious so that's the kind of thing that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's a, such a Tolkienian thing to do, a Tolkien a thing that Tolkien does. How about that? Um, <laughs> which is that he he just gives you this hint to what could be this whole mythic story about yeah, the, uh, right. the battle the battle for the moon, and there's these spirits of shadow, and clearly there's going to be the spirits of the stars, and then Tilian himself, and maybe the Valar get involved at some point. Um, but but it's it's a pretty cool. So yeah. I wanted to show everyone too um, the version that we're that I'm reading from anyway he has this this cool Ted Naismith. Are we allowed to show pictures from? Other sure. People? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Real quick. So this is the rising of the sun against the mountains. The first rising of the sun. Did I... Yeah, I love that picture. Cool. Ted Naismith is so good at scenery that. Yes. Uh... Yes. That that is his strong suit. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, the other thing that 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 uh, because of that, right? The 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 that he assailed Tilian, and he feared Arian. Um, I, you could say that what the Valar did it did diminish him, because for as he grew in malice and sent forth from himself the evil that he conceived in lies and creatures of wickedness, he might pass into them and was dispersed, and he himself became ever more bound to the earth, unwilling to issue from his dark strongholds with shadows he hid himself and his servants from arian the glance of whose eyes they could no longer endure just like the orcs didn't like the sun i mean like you could say like hey when he imbued his will and power into them as he as he changed the elves into orcs like they could not bear the sun anymore either and the lands near his dwelling were shrouded in fumes and great clouds yeah and then it's at this point that the uh that the valar raised up the pylori until they're sheer and dreadful without a foothold or ledge, faces as hard as glass and rose up as towers with crowns of white ice. Uh, yeah, and then they hunker down. They're like, we did our duty. We're, you got the sun, you got the moon, you're on your own. Until, save only one, the mightiest mariner of song. Right, foreshadowing. That's right. So, Dan, did you have any additional thoughts? I have one final thought about the philosophy of Tolkien from a quote. but Sure. Uh, just real quick, I, I thought it was interesting to me reading through this as someone who's obviously read Lord of the Rings and how the elves are always like, they have this affinity to stars and they have this affinity to the moon, it seems like, in Lord of the Rings. And it's I like how Tolkien is kind of like going back in time and explaining that, how they came from a middle earth that was just pure starlight. It didn't have any other light. And uh, he also ties it back to like the water, like, because they had this journey across the ocean and um, it, it kind of harkens to them at all, at all times. So I, that, that I had that thought. And then I also liked how Tolkien in this chapter pointed out that the sun is kind of like emblematic or, or symbolic of like the waxing of men, like hmm. men are now coming to the fore and the waning of the moon is like the elves. Um, I'm trying to remember wh what the exact quote was, but he, he basically says like the, the sun and the moon are here. And it's kind of like, this is like now the time of men will be the time of sunlight and the elves kind of fading or waning in middle earth. It's, it's kind of like the moon. I thought that was kind of cool. I'm, I'm trying to find that line. Um, but the Noldor named them also Rana, the wayward, and Vasa, the heart of fire that awakens and consumes. For the sun was set as a sign for the awakening of men and the waning of the elves. But the moon cherishes their memory. That's beautiful. I, I, I didn't even like think about that one. But the moon cherishes the memory because it has like the light of the stars because it has the light of the tree in it. Right. And yeah, that's nice. Thanks, also, this I, I think that. this tells us that the that now the men are men are rising. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. The sun is set as a sign for the awakening of men. Yeah, the fire of men that burns out brightly, way too hmm. fast, <laughs> like That's sparks great. in the night. Um, well, I'm going to finish when, with my with a quote that I thought was pretty cool. Um, it's a really difficult sentence to read, though. We'll see if I get it right. <laughs> so this is this is Manway, and he's responding to the last words of Fionor that at least the Noldor should do deeds to live in song forever. So he says. So this is Manway speaking. He says, "So shall it be." Dear bought, those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought, for the price could be no other. Thus, even as Eros spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. 
so it's a fascinating, I mean, this is, I mean, we're kind of seeing some of the wisdom of Manway to how he's closest in thought to Eero, mm-hmm. um, because he's bringing up in the midst of their grief about the fall of Feanor, the greatest of the children of Iluvatar, he's bringing up that by evil, there will be good that would not have been without the evil. Mm. So, so even, or as Iluvatar says to um, Melkor at the beginning, you know, you can try as you might, but everything you do will be turned to the good and to the song. Um, so, you know, in other words, you can't, you can't, you can't right. out, out judo the judo master. Turn, <laughs> turns everything, every evil thing against you, and uses it and uses it for a greater good. So, I just I thought that was pretty cool, a reinforcement of the um, of the will of Aluvatar and the way the way the world is structured according and, to. The- and and I think um, you know for the doom of Mandos there. Manway does say for the price could be no other. There is nothing else that could have been done in order to pay that price of like what right. you know, was done. Um, and then you have the eternal easy. pessimist or realist Mando say, and yet remain evil. <laughs> so <laughs> so Manway says yeah. evil shall yet be good to have been, but Mando says, says and yet remain evil. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's be careful and not call evil good, right. but it can be made. And I'll, and all things, we can work toward the good. Also, he says, to me, Fionnar shall come soon. So basically, <laughs> he's dead. Fionnar is not, not long for this, for the yeah. world of Middle Earth anyway. Yeah. I think you really, you really in that, what you just, were just talking about, how even the, it's for evil, it's good for it to have been, because good is going to come out of it. You really see Tolkien's uh, Christian worldview, I guess. Um, I would agree. Well, you, you see, I, I'm, I'm trying to think if you have that in any other major worldview or religion where you have a good God or a good creator and he ordains in, in, in some sense evil to be and that in the end it will only redound more to his glory and it'll, mm-hmm. it'll be for the good of those who love him. Um, I mean, I, I would I suppose you have a um, hints of it in Lewis's space trilogy in Narnia. Um, not quite as ex- as explicit as this, uh, and and to be fair, this is the most explicit Tolkien gets. When you read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you don't see or hear anything this explicit about right. evil yeah. being allowed for the sake of good, greater good to be brought out of it. Yeah, but I agree is is pretty. It is showing Tolkien's Christian worldview pretty clearly. Yeah, this chapter seems so small and short, but yet it's it feels like almost one of the deeper chapters. I think it's quite deep. I think it's it has to do with what you mentioned, Jonathan, earlier that it's part mythological. Mythology yeah. is isn't there to just have tall be tall tales about you know it's the one of the classic tropes that sometimes exists in mod, with moderns is they say that people that believe in a you know a god or a, a worldview of the, have a supernatural in their worldview are just believing you know in a silly way the way you know the, the Norse would invent a god yeah. of thunder because they were afraid of the thunder. Um, so. So uh, there's, it, it, it's not for Tolkien. It's not that way at all. No, um, mythology gets at a deeper root. Right. So yeah, there, I, lo- I loved it. Next chapter is even shorter. Yeah, and I think we're only going to do one chapter. We we uh, I, I like that we take the time to go through it very deliberately. And so let's do that. Let's stick with of men. Next week, chapter twelve. Uh, it's a nice short chapter name after the last one of the sun and the moon and the hiding of Valnor. And now we get eh, of men. 
<laughs> Not much but to short, say about this. As short as you can get, five letters. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we'll move on to that next week. Um, before we close out, though, we have our... If you like Tolkien. And Michael, I think today you have something you're going to show us. Right. Right behind us. Or right behind me, anyway. Um, so this is... a. Uh, illustrated version as, as i think most people that listen to the channel or people may or may not know illustrated read, version of what um this is the hobbit so uh and it's illustrated with alan lee um by alan lee so it has all these great uh these great images and pictures i'll, I'll flip to two of them so to just show examples so these are alan lee's watercolors so i love i'm, I'm always on the lookout for good editions of the lord of the rings and the hobbit so you have um you have uh I can't tell actually if I'm showing well. That's good. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have this is the Karak, um, the landing on the Karak of Gandalf and the and the Hobbit and the dwarves, and then you have things like the the des- the Smaug attacking the mountainside. So Alan Lee is one of the best um, artists uh, when it comes to Tolkien and has a very fairy story esque look to him. And so this is a beautiful version. So if you anyone has kids and they would like to read um, the uh, they like to read Tolkien to the kids, or they would like to try. This is a great addition to start with. Yeah, I, I got, I got, uh, I got really lucky uh, a couple of years ago. I was just cruising through Barnes and Noble, and they had that in there in the bargain bin. I'm like, yes, oh. it was you know five bucks or six bucks or something. I'm like, okay, nice. you didn't buy us a copy. <laughs> was, I, I didn't know you at the time, <laughs> I so know, I, I should have had some. Foresight. Yeah, actually, I don't even know if I have that copy. Hold on. <laughs> Would it be under the red light or the blue light? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have that one. I'm going to have to go get that one. Yeah, no, maybe that's why my kids don't want to read it with me because all I'm doing is the one without the pictures. <laughs> and, I, and I don't give them candy like you do, Michael. So uh, that is my, uh, it, I felt bad about that response. I, re- I, I felt like I was going on and on. <laughs> I know. This is in our Discord channel with our uh, patrons. Which is th- what a great segue! Thank you so much, Michael, for that. Yeah, so we, we talk about a lot of things there. One of them is how does Michael get all of his seventy-four children to read the, the Hobbit? It's just Something mine. like that. I it's lose count. Mine. It's just mine. yeah, and uh, and, and so we have a Discord channel. It's uh, it's at uh, thewandering.com/slash/patron. You can become a patron there, and uh, you get access to our Discord channel. We'll have an extended podcast. Uh, we will have. Uh, you can do comments and you can, we have message board, uh, and we do, uh, about bi-weekly once every two weeks or so we'll do uh, a live video chat within discord as well. The only way to get access to that is to become a patron, a, a supporter of us. And, um, we're always sinking more into this and we want to do more and more. So the more support we get, the more we can do. So we appreciate your support. And uh, if you go to the one slash patron, it's $4 a month. First month is free. So you can cancel if you don't like it and we're okay with that. But if you can, great. We would love to see more folks joining us. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, we're so glad that right now we can discuss without having the rings of power <laughs> floating the, over you, us. You keep bringing it up, man. I just, I completely just forgot so, about it. No, I'm so sorry. I know you went and you, you, you grabbed your pipe weed and you sat down and read Tolkien for a good oh, man. 72 hours before you could wash the stench off. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, so thanks for being with us on uh, this Finally, this episode of Window on the West, when we get to get back into the Silmarillion. Next week, we'll do Of Men, and we'll also, uh, we'll talk about what we'll do next, because it's a short chapter. Maybe we'll throw in a few fun more things next week, because um, I'm not sure how much to talk about. It's been a while since I've thought about that one chapter that I read through in like three minutes once, but we'll go to it. So, (laughs) Of Men, Chapter 12, the Silmarillion, and we will see you next week on Window on the West.
All right. Take care, all. See ya.